I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the final episode of the Eurocopa podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for joining us. Tonight we saw a dominant France team go out to Underdogs Portugal. And in some ways, it summed up a year of football where we saw Underdogs win out, whether it was trophies or championships. So, in order to join me to discuss the final of the European Championship, are two Goliaths to my David, Karthik Krishnayar and Robert Hay Jr. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Guys, let's start instead of going straight into dissecting the final i want to uh, just like we did with uh, uh with copa america i want to get your thoughts on uh, on the championship uh, on on the championship as a whole so the first thing karthik i want to talk to you about uh, let's actually start with the coverage from espn let's let's step away from the obvious fact we know the coverage was better than fox we don't need to get into that we don't need to talk about fox at all talk to me about the espn coverage what were the good uh, what were the good things and what things that they need to improve on? Okay, obviously, we all seem to always at World Soccer Talk view ESPN through the lens of comparing them to Fox. So, Nupun, I'm glad you you gave us that uh, gave us that introduction because it it seems we're always praising ESPN and NBC for that matter in their Premier League coverage when there are places they can improve mm-hmm. uh, because we're comparing them to Fox and we're, and we're comparing the alternative if the rights were for, in this case, the Euro- European Championships or in the NBC's case, the Premier League, were to fall to Fox, much as the FIFA rights have now. Right. I, I think ESPN's strengths uh, were their production their bumper programming uh, with the with the Euro uh, pregame shows and, and and the link shows in between uh, the, uh, the the games during the group stages and during the early part of knockout stages, the round of 16 knockout stages. Mike Tirico was still with the network at the time. His contract expired June 30th. We know he's moving to NBC, mm-hmm. so he had to leave the network at the time. I think uh, the studio presence of Bob Lee and Steve Bauer, Steve Bauer, by the way, will be hosting the first few weeks of the Premier League on NBC as Rebecca Lowe is on Olympic duty in Rio. Uh, Bauer has become very familiar to us in the United States, even though he's a BBC presenter uh, normally. He, he obviously filled in for Rebecca Lowe. Uh, and he filled in for Arlo White for a couple of weeks as the, as the uh, uh, match commentator. Then he took over st- uh, uh, studio duties when Rebecca Lowe went on uh, maternity leave. That that was for NBC. And then this summer did very well with the Euros for ESPN. And then, of course, Taylor Twelman, who I think is the best in the business, uh, regardless of accent, regardless of national national background, regardless of ethnicity. He's the best guy, for my ears, that we listen to uh, on co-commentary in the United States in any soccer competition, in mm-hmm. my opinion, whether it be the Premier Major League, Major League Soccer, Bundesliga. He, he, he's as good as it gets. All, another positive is Craig Burley. Craig Burley, to me, pulls no punches. Very, 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 very strong. And uh, I, I was pleased with him. As far as mixed bag, I would say there were a lot of um, a, a, a lot of I wouldn't say mediocre performances, but inconsistent performances. I, th- I think Steve McManaman got stronger as the tournament went on, but at times he gave some very generic cookie-cutter analysis. Roberto Martinez, I think, in general is pretty good, but he goes soft on England, which is something that uh, our, our colleague, the gaffer, Christopher Harris, pointed out to me in 2014, and I really saw in this tournament that because he, he is, lives in England, uh, he's made his entire uh, professional life in the United Kingdom since he le- he's Spanish, of course, but he, he left Spain about 20 years ago. He he goes very soft on English players and very soft on the England national team and, and also on Wales. And 
course, uh, he's a former Swansea player and, and manager. So I think that's the critique I would have of him because I think Martinez is always looking for that next job, which he assumes will be in the British Isles. So I, I think he's very good when it doesn't involve teams from the British Isles. I would say that Michael Bollock uh, was better in this tournament than he's been in the previous two, but he still gives some very generic analysis, some head scratchers. I, I think Santi Solari was very good with the exception of the one thing that our colleague, the gaffer pointed out, which was uh, he was excited about the Spain Croatia game during the group stage and had forgotten that game was the day <laughs> that he was on the air. He <laughs> thought it was the next day and said, I can't wait for this game tomorrow. These, these games we're, we're seeing now are, are not quite at the level that Spain Croatia will be at tomorrow. It turned out the Spain Croatia game was kicking off about a half hour later and he was supposed to be previewing that game for that day but Solari was pretty good I, I think Julie Foudy was very strong as usual with one exception and again it's the same thing as Martinez I think uh, there was a inherent bias uh, for whatever reason in, in, in Julie Foudy who I adore thinks one of the best American voices about this sport now for two decades uh, when it came to England I mean she doesn't even exhibit that bias when she's covered World Cups and we've talked about the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, there, there's – and I think maybe that was the, the, the major critique of ESPN's coverage, just to sum, summarize here. Uh, the Anglicization of it with Martinez and Fowdy, who are not English, uh, being – reluctant to criticize England. Maka basically cheerleading for England. Ian Dark, who is a professional, but at times um, seemed to be rooting on England, particularly in the England-Wales game. I, I found that annoying. Uh, it, it kind of slipping in, in, in that uh, vein. But uh, you take the kind of the England uh, bias out of it. I thought the coverage was very good. I think LeBeouf was a pretty good uh, uh, addition to give uh, some, some French perspective. I enjoyed the features that Alison Bender did. And uh, shout out to Casey Keller. Uh, he had a really strong tournament as an analyst, and and I that I was not expecting. So um, again, you know, I I'll just wrap up on this. And I know you said you don't want to talk about Fox, but Fox for some reason when they have American uh, Americans commentating on games and Americans analyzing games. It led, leads to the stereotype among people who uh, believe European commentators are better or Latin American commentators are better, that Americans can't commentate on this game and don't know this game. Then you see the strength of Twelman, who, I, who I've said I think is the best in the business. I take him above any British commentator, any Latin American commentator, uh, a Keller, a Julie Foudy. And, and you, you realize, you know, Americans can do OK if, in the right environment. So – that's a question to Fox, and, and um, we'll drop the topic of Fox from here on, here on out the show. Yeah, I think I agree with most of what you say. I disagree on Casey Keller. I think he was very, very disappointing as an analyst. I think I tweeted that as well. I thought his opinions were very generic. I didn't think he had any analysis. He was sitting with Michael Ballack, who I agree with you, didn't provide the best analysis. But it, it when the two of them were in combination, uh, it seemed like Michael Ballack was far the better analyst. And I think that is indicative of... Um, how poorly I thought Keller was doing. Maybe we just uh, maybe we watched different games and uh, he was good at whichever game you ended up watching. Um, and other than that, I think uh, another standout thing for me from the the Craig Burley thing, um, I thought he was so I kind of lost faith in Craig Burley a little bit because I I listen to ESPN FC every day um, and it sometimes is just a shouting match um, and and that so I was a little turned off on Craig Burley, but I agree with you. I think he was stronger this. Uh, tournament than he has been um, uh, on ESPN FC. Um, what about you? T tell me, Robert, what, what were your takeaways from the coverage of ESPN? Well, I think really Casey Killer was at his strongest when there was gaffes uh, with the keepers in this tournament. And mm. there was, of course, a number of, of sure. key ones. So I think that's where he was strongest. When he was providing general analysis, uh, I, I agree that he wasn't as as good. And I think that that's where his weaknesses was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Craig Burley was kind of came across for me. What, what made him unique was first of all the the strength of his analysis, just how strong his opinions were and how he backed them up. But also, he was um, with that Scottish accent, kind of an independent voice uh, without his <laughs> without his national team in this tournament. Um, he he was a, a you know kind of like some of the American analysts. Analyst, um, he was uh, he didn't have a horse in this race, so he could give a little bit more independent thought on this, and I think that was valuable there. Um, the production value for this uh, mm. tournament was incredible, yeah. incredible. Yeah, uh, going, point. you know, when you start off with the videos that in introduce the matches, where you bring in actors, actors and actresses like Maisie Williams and um, 
uh, oh, what's his name? I'm blanking on the actors' names, but they had some quality actors and actresses who did kind of the voiceovers uh, for this tournament, uh, for these videos. And then you lead into the analysis where they talked about, I mean, there was a good tactical depth to it that didn't get too deep, but also touched on the extracurricular activities that were happening on the wider world, uh, going on, whether it was the riots or the political situations or, or whatever without overdoing it. Um, I thought for the most part ESPN stayed away from narrative too much. I mean, they touched on narrative and they had some narrative strains, but it wasn't everything wasn't colored by narrative. I mean, the the English laws wasn't Brexit, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Um, although you could say it was, <laughs> but um, they did a good job of weaving narrative and tactical analysis to make an entertaining overall entertaining um, tournament. And you know, they didn't do everything right. But considering some of the challenges they had, you know, moving sets, um, having to, to move presenters, uh, definite lack of, of Portuguese voices in this uh, in this analysis, which turned out to be, I think, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, very, I thought it was a good it was a good presentation, and I think it was enough to, uh, if you weren't a soccer fan, this would at least pique your interest in the sport in the states. Yeah. Well, one other quick point I want to make, uh, and this is important for Fox as they go to the 2018 World Cup, news gathering, having people who cover news. Uh, they, they they didn't try and force narrative, and Robert is they did have the ability to break news with uh, ABC News's capabilities and also Gab Marcotti, who's one of the top football writers right. in the UK, uh, uh, Italian-born, American-raised, uh, British-reared, <laughs> if you want to call it that, Gab Marcotti, who's got all these global perspectives. So they had actual news-gathering journalists on site, Jeremy Schapp also, of course. So they were able to weave in newsy stories, political stories about right-wing groups in, in Eastern Europe and, and, and how they were uh, – uh, impacting this tournament and the uh, violence around the tournament, the, the discussion of Brexit and, and subtly bringing Brexit into the conversation, breaking some news, being able to report on the violence. Those are the sorts of things that Fox is going to have to do in 2018, particularly with the World Cup in Russia. Uh, if they're allowed to actually report on news, we don't know if Fox will be given the ability, because it's in Russia, to actually report things. Mm. I, they might They might be gagged. If France is a free country, Russia really isn't. Karthik, uh, I've known you about four years since I started podcasting podcasting and the one thing i didn't think i would ever hear you say is that you wanted more fox news so this is pretty incredible (laughs) (laughs) this is pretty incredible Fox News can can sublicense to ABC, NBC, or CBS some legitimate news organization for the world (laughs) no i don't want Fox News in Russia (laughs) <laughs> All right, Karthik, let's talk about another thing that uh, was important, and that's the new group format. Oh, it's not new, but it was reintroduced here with the third-place teams um, having a chance to go through. And, you know, there were some good things that happened with that, some poor things. So overall, what, what are your thoughts on this? I know that your uh, Euros, uh, the next Euros will also have this format. So what are your thoughts on the group format? Right. Uh, the only difference is the next Euros won't have a host country. Uh, although uh, England will be the host of the final, right. mm-hmm. uh, the, the the tournament will be played all over the place. I, I liked the format. I thought it kept it very interesting. Now the thing it did do was it led to more defensive football at the group stage, right? right. right. And and that was uh, unfortunate in a sense. But then at the same time, it it allowed us to see the likes of uh of northern ireland make the knockout stages of a major tournament uh, the likes of uh iceland uh, make make the knockout stages of a major tournament it allowed portugal who would underperform uh, and, and we're going to talk about this when we get to the final so maybe i'll save the portugal analysis for later but it allowed portugal to do what they did it, and it allowed us to see some new countries we haven't seen at international tournaments. Iceland would have qualified anyway under the old format. Mm. But we got to see Albania for the first time, and they were a delight to watch. They played very well, I think, in all three of their games. Uh, We got to see uh, an Austria team that didn't play so well, but they hadn't qualified for a major tournament in a long time. Uh, We got to see uh, Northern Ireland, and they actually won their group in qualifying, uh, but they they hadn't been in a major tournament in in 30 years. And most interestingly, I think, we got to see Hungary who would not have qualified under the old format, and they played some of the best football in the group stage uh, in this tournament. They were one of the few teams that went for it, and you wanted to watch and were exciting and open and would play uh, with some gusto even when they were down to 10 men against uh, against Austria. So you know what? I like seeing more countries in this tournament. It's not like uh, 
in CONCACAF, if you expand the, the field and you end up with uh, going from 12 to 16 teams in CONCACAF, for example, people have talked about that with the Gold Cup, that would make a, a bad tournament even worse because the level of play in, in the CONCACAF region in North America and the Caribbean is ter- is not very high. Same thing with Asia. If you expand the Asian Cup, it would make the tournament worse. Your, the, the level of play in Europe now, uh, partly, I, we don't want to get into this political discussion about Brexit, but partly because of the EU and the Bosman rule uh, and the, the ability of players from Eastern European countries uh, to, to go to any league in Western Europe and, and guys are, to move around Western European leagues has elevated the play of so many smaller nations that were typically outsider nations in this uh, in this sport. And, and uh, Albania is a clear example of that. Bosnia has been a clear example of that. Croatia has been for many years an example of that. So Poland is an example of that. They've got their players all over the place. So uh, I think it's a good thing. I think because European football is being elevated, 24 teams is the right number. And at some point in the future, I know people are going to get terrified when I say this and and angry. 32 might be the right number Mm. uh, 12 years from now, 16 years from now. I don't advocate growing other tournaments. I just think the the upward curve in in Europe is is the trajectory for these these nations is much, much stronger than in the rest of the world. I I agree with you because I think that in general, uh, maybe maybe this comes into political conversation with socialism and uh, socialism and such, but in general, for me, there's a far greater parity in the level of football in Europe than it is, especially in South America. In South America, football has been dominated by Argentina and Brazil. Um, maybe Colombia comes into that picture. Uh, maybe Uruguay comes into that picture. But in Europe, there is a lot more competition, a lot of teams that uh, cycle in and out of dominance. And I, I don't th- I don't see that happening very often in South America. Uh, there's a lot more teams that are able to step up to the plate Right now, we're looking at that with Belgium. Um, so I, I agree with you. I, I think the 24 uh, uh, team tournament is probably conducive to to some more exciting football. But the the takeaway that I have to ask you, Robert, is about that the, the negative part, which is that we saw some pretty boring football before the start of the tournament. I thought I predicted that incorrectly that the euros would be far more exciting than the copa uh, but whether it was the fact that there's there was injury time and it didn't go straight to penalties or whatever the reason that I, I thought in general it was less less exciting than copa well there's a couple of reasons for that the first okay. one is just the way the tournament was run better than the copa america we've talked about why that is you know there's some unfortunate things due to timing there's some crazy things such as refereeing decisions with the Copa and, and things like that. But overall, the, Euro, the Euros were run much better, much more efficiently as, as they were expected to be. So in that sense, they're a lot more boring because you don't have a fish, you know, your referee in the final going out and sending people off left and right. So that's one part of it. But to, to speak to your point, um, I, and this is why I kind of sour a little bit on the, on the expanded field, um, it, there is less of an incentive to um, do more than snatch and grab. I mean, if you get three points... Uh, you, you win a game in your group stage, you're almost guaranteed to go through. I mean, not entirely, but you you have a huge advantage going in, uh, you know, against some other third place teams if you end up finishing third. So it, it 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 does reward conservative play. It does reward doing just enough in order to to advance. And we did see that with some teams. Um, you know, as for as much as we talk about. You know, Northern Ireland, for example, a Northern Ireland-Wales game was uh, had moments of brilliance, but overall it was kind of just, you know, not that great. I mean, you go through the list. Uh, there was a lot of just dull tournament games um, just because there were teams that knew they could do just enough, especially in the group stages, to do to get to this next round. And uh, once you get to the knockout stages, anything can happen. So uh, there's – and I think this is true of a lot of major sporting events these days, no matter the sport, is there's a – there's a reward to conservatism. Um, hmm. There's this idea that if you if you don't stick your neck out too much, if you do things just enough to advance or just enough to win, um, you're better off because um, you'll you'll um, you won't get burned by being a little too risky. So, I think you saw that in this tournament and with some of these teams with the expanded format. I think it's inevitable it's going to expand. Um, I believe I saw today that UEFA is making 900 million. I believe it's dollars uh, off this tournament, um, and when you make that kind of money with this many teams, what happens if you add more teams? And right. you know, you're adding more, you're adding more uh, federations as well um, in Europe as as things go politically. So, Robert, do you think um, we're think- actually going to get to? Uh, uh, this is definitely a larger conversation, but very quickly, your thoughts because you talked about this. Do you think we're mm-hmm. going to get to a tipping point in terms of 
interest in football because I think we we are definitely coming close to the end of the exponential stage. Oh, well, if you're talking about a worldwide stage, I think you will get to a point where it'll just – I mean there's so much football. I mean that's yeah. the thing. And I think you'll get to a point where you're getting compared – this tournament will get compared to the Champions League, get compared to different league tournaments, get compared to all kinds of things. So I think there will be a point where just everything will get compared to everything else. And if you don't have that one media moment, then it's just not going to be interesting. Hmm. All right. Uh, Karthik, let's talk another th- about another thing. A uh, couple of – Negative aspects of this tournament were definitely sorted out for the latter half of the, uh, the, the, the tournament. But at the start of the tournament, we saw security breaches. We saw flares being thrown on the field. We saw hooliganism, which we talked about on another episode. Uh, and I mean, we, we even saw people as recently as last week, a fan, uh, breaking through for the Portugal semifinal and taking selfies with Cristiano. So that sort of thing is still worrisome, especially when we remember that before the start of the tournament, all of us were looking back uh, at the issues with terrorism uh, and and the attacks in Paris. So uh, with that perspective, uh, we seriously, as as a footballing world, need to improve um, uh, security still. Yes, it it was kind of a shameful display. I mean, I think the Paris attacks in November and then obviously the attacks in Brussels – jaded the thought process of security officials and law enforcement coming into this tournament to have to be ready for a big al-Qaeda attack. And then also the uh, the, the, the events in Orlando, right, mm-hmm. which uh, were linked to al-Qaeda, whether that's a legitimate link or an embellished link. Uh, anyone can pledge allegiance to al-Qaeda and, and, and blow up something, right? right. But um, it doesn't mean it was actually a coordinated attack. But that that happened, that Orlando attack happened the first weekend of the Euros. So there is heightened alert about al-Qaeda going on uh, in France, which uh, I think made this, I don't want to say it became permissible, it really, French officials began to take their eyes off the ball uh, of the kind of violence and, and paramilitary groups and hooligans that tend to organize around these sorts of football tournaments, particularly in Eastern Europe, right-wing groups. And then uh, with England, there's historically been problems when they travel to major international tournaments. Now, uh, England has done the best they could to stamp that out over the course of the last uh, of, of 20 years or so. But there were some scenes that harkened back to the 1980s and uh, England supporters. And, and I have to say this. I know a lot of English people get get defensive about this hooliganism thing. A lot of the hooligans that are England national team supporting hooligans or alleged supporters are not really football supporters. They're, they're people who use football as an excuse to, to go mad and to uh, engage in violence. They are not people who support uh, big club teams on a, uh, on a, at a, on a regular basis back mm-hmm. home in, in, in England. They're not Manchester United supporters. They're not Liverpool supporters. They're not Man City supporters or Chelsea supporters. They are uh, by and large people who support non-league teams or, or, or kind of, carry the England national team as their club team. That's a very small percentage of people who actually support England. Very small percentage. And they're not football fans. They're not the, the kind of week-in and week-out football fan that's someone who is a, 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 a member of Southampton Football Club and goes to all the all, all the matches and, and, and lives and breathes Southampton Football Club is. It's, it, it's, they're, they're a different breed of people. So I think it's important that England, England fans from England and people in football in England understand that element is still there. They may be 1% of English fans, but they're there. Uh, and they're people who, as I said, they don't go to, to championship matches or Premier League matches, football league matches. They're, they're people who are, in some ways, dropouts from society. And mm-hmm. we saw some problems in uh, the World Cup in 1998 with England fans. We, we've, seen, we've heard reports in... in, in um, Euro 2004 and World Cup 2006 that if the police, uh, the policing around the games in Portugal in 2004 and, and Germany in 2006 hadn't been so strong, there might have been problems with uh, uh, England supporters. And one last point, um, a, a prominent journalist who is English, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to say who on the show, has told me and, and, and this journalist is covering the Euros is in, is in Saint-Denis tonight as we record this um, it, it covers every major international tournament, has told me that other You might as well tell us his name, Karthik, if you're going to play. I'm not going to, because I don't want to divulge this, it was a private conversation, but um, there were probably a thousand people covering the game tonight anyway um, but he's told me that consistently when uh, England is in major tournaments 
and other groups of supporters are playing against England or have a match in the same city as England supporters, they're on edge. And maybe that's a bad historical stereotype. Maybe it's an unfortunate stereotype and a legacy of the 1980s and early 1990s, but that that happens. So mm-hmm. the the tendency of other supporters who are in the same cities as England or happen to be playing England, maybe to lash out and fight are, are greater than if they're playing the Republic of Ireland or if they're playing France or if they're playing Portugal. So that's uh, something to keep in mind. Uh, it's just a it's an ugly thing and authorities have to be more uh, more vigilant about this and they have to be aware of the threats particularly and i think maybe you and robert will get into this the, the whole croatia situation that was uh, something where it was obvious there might be problems and and they didn't take the necessary precautions to stop it yeah um robert that that was a problem right with with, with the flares being thrown on the field and the uh, we we sort of expected some of that madness to come out as karthik mentioned some of the f- fans who were "Quote unquote fans who are on the fringes of of these supporter groups who who are just there to cause trouble uh, would show up. So what what did you make of that? Yeah, well, it's it's a it's a complex issue, and part of it is you know there has to be some policing by the FA itself, and this goes for all the FAs that participate mm-hmm. in these tournaments. I mean, there's got to be more. Um, y- you have to hold these FAs more accountable, I think, for some of this activity. Um, so that's part of it. The other part of it is you do have to have an awareness of what the situation is game in and game out. And I think Hardik is right. You know, you just the police are, are worried about these bigger issues, rightfully so, but you're not concerned or you're not, and maybe they are and they just didn't show it, but you know, you're not sitting there thinking through, okay, we've got a, a match. There's some powder kegs, metaphorically speaking, that could come into play here. How do we prevent that? But, you know, there's also another element to it, which is, you know, life is what it is and people do stupid things. And I think sometimes it's inevitable that people will do stupid things on televised matches. Um, I I think about the selfie with Cristiano Ronaldo as a perfect example. Can you stop those kind of things ahead of time? It's tough. I, you know, I don't know how you, maybe you can tackle the guy a little bit quicker, but at some point, you know, you got to balance this enjoyment of the game with fans mm-hmm. yeah, with the security concerns. So I think it's a matter of looking at the big picture, looking at the specific incidences, but at the same time realizing anytime you gather tens of thousands of people in a stadium, there is that opportunity for something to happen. And where is that fine line between removing all enjoyment of the game to make sure everybody stays in their place and cheers appropriately versus risking somebody running out to the field and making a fool of themselves. It's a tough question. I mean, in all sports deal with this. Uh, just look at women's tennis, for example, if you want to go back a few years. But um, it, it's not an easy question to answer, which is just, it's not as easy as saying more security. It's not as easy as saying more CCTV. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy as saying, you know, check it at the, at the gate. But I think there does need to be more communication and more thought put into this by not only the tournament organizers, but the FAs themselves. Yeah. Gentlemen, with with the incredibly exciting International Champions Cup coming up, you, listener, will have an exciting opportunity to watch top-class European clubs play each other here on our very own turf. Whether it's watching Cristiano's Real Madrid square up against Di Maria's PSG in Columbus, Ohio on July 27th, or an all-English affair between Conte's new-look Chelsea against Klopp's Liverpool side, who are quietly rebuilding both their brand as well as their personnel, there's only one place you should be looking at for tickets, and that's SeatGeek. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to look at tickets for that Madrid PSG game in Columbus, Ohio, which is just four hours away from me. So uh, SeatGeek wants uh, wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced t- seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Well, how do you do that? Well, this is what you have to do. The best thing of all of this is that our listeners, our World Soccer Talk listeners, get, get a $20 rebate off of their first SeatGeek purchase. In order to do that, you have to download the SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code. Enter promo code WSTPOD. And SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So go ahead, listener, download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WSTPOD today. 
Gentlemen, before we get into the final, there was one question we got on Twitter uh, that I wanted to get to. And Karthik, I'll come to you um, with this question. Um, and the question is from Robert at Sunny SoCal, Rob25. He asks, will Portugal and Germany use the Confederation Cup to bring in their youth players? And before you answer, let me just set uh, the, the context here. Uh, the Confederations Cup will, Cup will be played, sorry, will be played next year in Russia. Uh, and with Brazil having lost, uh, Brazil having not won the Copa, they're out. They're, they're the uh, defending champions. The current teams are Russia, Germany, Australia, Chile, Mexico, New Zealand, Portugal, and the yet-to-be-decided uh, African Cup of Nations winner, which will probably be, be, be Ghana, is my guess at this point. Uh, so, Karthik, your thoughts on a question that Robert asks? It's not one that we often get into, so I really like that question. Yeah, I do too. I, great, great question, Robert. And I think we're seeing a young core for Portugal begin to emerge. Renato Sanchez, obviously, right. will uh, only turn 19 next month, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the most prominent one, but Carvalho is still young. Uh, William Carvalho right Yeah, now. I was going to say, not <laughs> Ricardo Carvalho. <laughs> but um, he's still young. Danilo is still young. Uh, Jao Mario, who had a very good tournament, was a revelation in this tournament, is still young. Andre Gomez is still young. So, uh, Gomez. So, I I think we're going to see Rafael Guerrero, of course, a French uh, raised player who uh, uh, from Borussia Dortmund, who who almost won the game before the winner today. He... um, He's a young player also. So I think Portugal is going young anyway. Mm-hmm. They're going to phase out a couple of these older players. I'm not sure we'll see Quaresma again, although uh, he had a good tournament, yeah, right? I think we'll uh, see I him again. I think he's, he's, he's around for 2018 World Cup. Yeah. Ricardo Carvalho was gone, right? Yeah, we know that. Sure. He's 38 uh, now. Has, uh, got hurt and he's gone. Uh, I don't think he'll be back. Uh, uh, Jose Font was a, uh, was a Band-Aid as well as he's played in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to look for, for a uh, younger center back uh, mm-hmm. to play there. Cedric Soares had a, had a pretty good tournament. He's a young player, too. So uh, I think they're going to go with a lot of young guys. Um, Germany might go even younger. I think they're, they're guys on the fringes of the German national team, uh, guys like uh, like Jillian uh, 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 Brandt at, at Bayer Leverkusen, who, who could get a, a nice little look in the Confederations Cup. Leroy Sané, who didn't get to play until the semifinal of this tournament. He might get a, a, a nice extended run out, three groups stage games, maybe a, a semi-final and final uh, for Germany in the Confederations Cup. Uh, uh, Kimmich, who has been such a revelation, right. four games for him. So I think Germany is just going to get younger in general. I think now that they didn't win this tournament, you're going to see a, a turning of the page on, on the Schweinsteigers and the Kadiras. Mm-hmm. I'd be surprised if Schweinsteiger didn't retire from national, international yeah. duty. I think Kadira uh, is falling off as well. Uh, that great generation of German players, uh, you're going to have just a core of th- really three guys left, Ozil, Müller, and Boateng. Ozil being uh, uh, f- the best player of that bunch. I mean, he had a great mm-hmm. tournament, I think. Well, one of the best players. And Kroos, Tony Kroos as well. And Kroos, right. Yeah. Kroos will still be around of that generation. But I think you're beginning to see a page turn for Germany. Now, the question is... Do you? I think you try and qualify with the veterans and for for the World Cup, and then you play those kids in the Confederations Cup. So I think it's a great question, and I think they will do it. Germany will. All right, let's talk about the final now, Robert. Uh, we have to start with. Um, let's start with the obvious stuff here. Obviously, France was the better team. I think anyone watching, having watched the entire game, would feel that France uh, deserved to win this game. So let's let's start talking about France. I think one Obviously. of the. Oh, obviously, <laughs> one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about um, is is Patrice Evra, uh, because the Patrice. So this is probably Evra is probably going to retire from international football, is my guess, uh, in the next couple of weeks. So this is probably goodbye to Evra. Uh, but his international career has seen some incredible highs and lows. Uh, involved in that famous bust up, including Nicolas Analka leading to that exit from France, being banned for five games uh, at, at the time, captain of France. Uh, basically an ignominy uh, um, in in France, and now he he's to the point that he's a leader. He's again he's not a captain anymore, but he's a leader on that team. He's one of the players that all the players look up to, uh, and in some ways he's emblematic of what has been a very good France team, regardless of the fact that they lost. Yeah, I think you've you've laid out the history very well there, and I think it's emblematic of really kind of what this French team is. There's so much potential and yet so much neuroses that's available Mm. for them. Um, And 
I, you know, he, he he's a, I think both his club and country career have been um, very recognizable, very notable, uh, good player. But um, it, it, it probably the more they get away from this the French team of the past eight sure. years, I think it's probably for the best for this team. There's mm. so much young talent coming up that um, I think that getting away from his, it's you know people. People like himself were involved in some of these dust-ups and some of these other issues, whether they be the players that were there or were not there. I uh, won't we'll get into that, but um, this is there's some there's a good young core with this French team that I think uh, there will be some leadership that comes out of, um, and I think that Patrice Ever represents an era that probably is um, should be noted with a nice little salute, nod of the head. But at the end of the day, might be best uh, moving on if France wants to seriously consider um, how well it plays in World Cups and Euros in the in the next few years to come. Karthik, uh, there are definitely players that can step in for uh, Ever. I mean, we're talking about uh, Sako, who who's now cleared to play again. Um, tons of players, Benoit Tremolinas, who plays at Sevilla as as, uh, as left back. So many quality players as as. Uh, Robert hints at that can come in. But on the other side, a Manchester City player that will also be moving on will be uh, probably Sanya, who, who's I think 32 as well, if, if I remember correctly. Um, so th- there's going to be turnover in this France team as well. But uh, we started the tournament, Karthik, talking about how this France team was, was one of the favorites. Uh, and how do you contextualize how they've ended up losing in a final at home can be considered disappointment. By the end of the day, they were probably one of the better teams. They were definitely the most, one of the more attractive teams to watch in the entire tournament. Yeah, they were probably one of the more attractive teams. I don't know if they were one of the better teams. I don't Mm. think they, uh, they got the most out of their, their uh, side. Now, somehow they got to the final in spite of that, and maybe the the the, the fortune, good fortune of playing, we we heard about how difficult that side of the draw was, right? But they got to play the Republic of Ireland, who, quite frankly, they were fortunate to beat within in in ninety minutes. Fell behind in that game and were behind for, uh, for much of that game, mm-hmm. and Iceland, who. Uh, obviously, were Iceland, and and then they did beat Germany. Group stage, I thought they were very poor. Uh, uh, the game against Romania, there were large stretches in the match where Romania were the better team. Albania really had them bottled up for about eighty or eighty-five minutes in that match, and in fact, uh, I think at that point, Albania had as many good chances to score as France had. And then against Switzerland, I thought from about minute sixty on, Switzerland were the better team, and they had taken their chances. Or, or even if a penalty had been called on Sonia, uh, Switzerland would have won the group. So I don't think. France was good in this tournament. They had a good game with a lot of national pride and a lot of energy and enthusiasm against a German side that uh, had just gone through a 120-minute marathon and, and that penalty, that epic penalty shootout against Italy. But I don't think they were very good in this tournament. And I think Deschamps made a number of mistakes tactically. I think today uh, he, he had Pogba playing too deep. I, I don't know why uh, uh, Conte, we didn't see him at all. Uh, we didn't see him... Uh, uh, from from the point he got suspended uh, after the uh, Republic of Ireland game, we didn't see much of him. I, I feel like uh, throwing Martial and Coman on were it became an easy option for him because it worked in the group stage against weaker opposition. But it, there was really no thought involved in just throwing on two fast wingers and trying to get them to to create chances. That having been said, Coman did create the chance that could have won the Euro for them. Right. But I, I just don't think there was much thought into what Deschamps did tactically. Even the swap, uh, Giroud for Gignac, I'm not, that was a straight swap today. I'm not quite sure what, what that accomplished. Ultimately, you know what we're going to be talking about? He didn't bring Benzema. They didn't win. Oh, I I have a lot of sympathy for Deschamps because on Twitter I saw a lot of criticism of the Conte decision and I kept thinking that... So this is where I landed with the Pogba thing. I think Pogba was played where he was played because because of the break of Ronaldo and Nani. Now, when Ronaldo and Nani are on the pitch, you need someone like Pogba who has the foot speed to keep up with the two of them because when you have fullbacks like Sanya and Evra who are pushing up, it becomes your holding midfielders who are going to track those runs into those deep areas. And once Cristiano went off uh, injured in uh, 12th, 13th minute, now you were left with a situation where you had uh, Sissoko who was the, the main driving force, but at the same time you needed Pogba to get on the ball more. So I have some sympathy for Deschamps, but I see what you're saying, but I have no 
I have no criticism, Robert, of the decision to leave Benzema. I mean, maybe it cost them the championship. I, I don't even know if that's a realistic thing to say. But in general, I think he did the right thing by that team by leaving Benzema. What about you? Yeah, you, you want to talk about team spirit and camaraderie. I mean, I, I don't see how you bring him to this tournament. Mm. I mean, it's just it's a disaster, uh, a PR disaster. You know, the, the questions wouldn't be around the team in advance, but it would be about him and his situation. It just it, it, it was it's a no brainer, I think, to not bring him. And yeah, you're going to open yourself up for criticism later on. But you know what the best way to beat off criticism is? It's to win win a tournament and it's mm. to win matches and you know if you remember at the beginning of this euros antonio conte was being criticized roundly by the italian press for who he brought you know this is the worst italy team yada 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 and you don't hear that um necessarily as much anymore because they won yeah. so if france is hoisting the trophy right well right now or if they're running through the streets of paris with that trophy right now uh this is a moot point but uh. um and i think that's that's and that's an obvious statement but um, you know, that's, that's what you get as a coach. It's like you make the right decision, but you have to back up that right decision and prove that it's the right decision. And for a lot of the reason Kardec said, you know, the, the uninspired tactical decisions for the most part, um, just the inability to adjust, especially in this, in this game today, um, Shams didn't. And, uh, I think that the bigger question that hopefully the press asks is why didn't he make do more with the players he had with hmm. the opportunity they had to win in this rather than who they I, I guess one other point I'll make about who they didn't bring and, and this was not Deschamps choice in fact he would have been the guy maybe the team was built around was Las Diara who's had a renaissance I thought you were going to say Rafael Varane but yeah Diara well Varane also I mean yeah. Varane not having him in central defense was was important uh, we saw today although I, I they, they cope with the loss of Varane better yeah. than I thought they would I thought uh, not having Diara and Varane would undo them in this tournament. I, I think I said that in the preview. But not having Diara today was pretty evident because Diara is kind of that link player that could have, especially accounting for what you were talking about, which is a very good point about Nani and, and Ronaldo on the break and having to uh, contain that. And even when Ronaldo went off, it, it's Quaresma and Nani then on the break. I mean, mm-hmm. two really good counterattacking players, fast players, even though uh, they're both uh, at an advanced age now. It, it, I think Diara does a lot of uh, box-to-box type work hmm. that France lacked in this tournament industry that Pogba doesn't bring them. So uh, I think that he was a missing piece, and that was something that um, Deschamps had not planned for, right? He, he got injured in that final friendly, which le- le- leads to the question, and I, maybe this is a question for another day. Uh, Wales played one friendly before the tournament, and they were fit and they were healthy, and they didn't have any problems uh, other than Joe Ledley's injury from the FA Cup final. They didn't have any problems until suspensions bit them in the semifinal. Yeah. All these other countries played two, three, four com- friendlies, uh, all against you know, all other European countries who, were, who had qualified for the Euros. And uh, they, they all ended up having injuries mm-hmm. entering the tournament. So that's that's something to think about in the future as we uh, go into major international tournaments. I know there's a theory you want to play a lot of friendlies and, and hone your team together and, and, and build some chemistry, but injuries come out of it. Lost Diara injury came out of that last friendly for France. If Diara doesn't get injured, there is a pretty good chance France wins the Euros, quite yeah, honestly. That's, that's a really interesting point, I, I guess. The only thing I would say is that, uh, without being disrespectful to Wales, when when you have Robson Kanu starting up front, you, you know you're pretty much certain what your starting eleven is. Yeah, you know is. what your team is, right? That's yeah, you team know team. what your team is, so you don't need to tinker that much in your and and you save those legs for a hard tournament, as you pointed out. When you're France and you have all these options, then you do need to play a little bit more. So, but I, I think I think there's something I think there's something to what you've said, Karthik, and uh, worth discussing more. But let's talk about Portugal now because we've. Really spent so much time on on uh, the runners up France, Karthik. Uh, starting in the previews, you, me, Karth, uh, you, me, uh, Gabe, as well as uh, Chris, uh, were discussing Portugal in a way that I think has become very common, which is that they are a bunch of underachievers. Whether you look at Nani, whether you look at Quaresma, whether you look at Veloso, who didn't even qualify for this uh, uh, to, to be on this team, whether you look at Mutino. These are all players that at one point were being marketed as the next big thing and did not deliver on that promise. Yet, they have won arguably the third biggest uh, international cup 
uh, championship there is uh, after uh, the World Cup and maybe maybe uh, Copa yeah, America. No, maybe second. Maybe, maybe second. second. Second or third. I, 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 I would argue the Euros in some ways are more difficult to win than uh, as uh, although I know the Denmark winning it and Greece winning it uh, defies mm-hmm. uh, the conventional wisdom. The uh, World Cup just keeps keeps being exchanged between the same countries right. over and over again. But I think the Euros are incredibly difficult to win. So, how, so where, how do you contextualize this Portugal team? How will history contextualize this Portugal team? I, I don't know because Portugal is a country, and I, I've, I've tweeted this over and over again and talked about this on this show, that if you look consistently at major tournaments, they've been one of the best countries in major tournaments outside of your elite football royalty nations, outside right. of your Germany's, Brazil's, Argentina's, uh, France, Italy, and Spain. Uh, other than those six countries, they've probably been the best country in, in international football over the course of the last 20 years but this is the worst performance they've given in a major tournament group stage in that entire period if you go back to 96 when they they, they made uh they came out of the group of the uh, uh in in the euros in 96 they didn't qualify for world cup 98 but they qualified for every major tournament since then and the two times they did not come out of the groups were in world cup 2002 where they had a lot of bad luck go against them in that tournament and they lost to the United States and World Cup 2014 where they did have four points in the group uh, but messed out, missed out uh, to the U.S. again on goal difference uh, because of their first game against Germany. So uh, every Euro they are the only country that has made uh, the quarterfinals of each of the last six Euros believe it or not. Italy can't say that France can't say that. Uh, Germany can't say that right. Germany didn't even get out of the group in 2004 Spain can't say that. Spain's been to or actually four, excuse me, because they didn't make the quarterfinals this time. But so they've been consistently this this country that's there. It's not like they. It's not like this is Iceland winning uh, the Euros or Denmark or, or, or Greece again. It, it's not that. But I think the way they won the Euros makes us think it's it's Greece again or Denmark again because this was the worst Portuguese performance, at least at the group stage, that we've seen in a major tournament uh, since the 1980s. Honestly, mm-hmm. I mean, and and. Uh, they got through it, and then they were very resourceful and very tactical, and they have enough individual ability in that team, even when they're not playing well. We saw that with Quaresma coming on and beating a Croatia team who maybe was the best team in the tournament in entering the uh, knockout stage. Uh, it, it, we, we saw that with uh, Renato Sanchez, this young prodigy, this player that we've heard so much about, uh, uh, showing these flashes of brilliance. We saw that even with Jao Matinho at times, even though he's he, he's really uh, at the club level faded badly with Monaco recently. And we saw it from Nani, a player who was so low on confidence when he left Manchester United and was not performing for the national team well, had a bad uh, Euro 2012, had a bad World Cup 2014. He was a very good player in this tournament. And then I have to say, and this is, uh, and we're probably going to talk about best players of this tournament, Pepe, to me, right. was the best yeah. player in this tournament. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think he was, uh, and he's, he's the pantomime, pantomime villain, right, for us all the time. Not mm-hmm. just for us, but for everybody in the media. And he's not a player I like, I, I'll be honest. But I thought he was a rock in this tournament, and he, and he showed that experience. Now Portugal has gone from being this very kind of uh, free-flowing football, uh, a silky play, but, but losing in the quarterfinals or semifinals of every major tournament to this tactical team built around defense, built around central defense defense and counterattacking. So that meant the the focus shifted from Luis Figo and then Cristiano Ronaldo, which it's been for the last 20 years, to Pepe. And so this is the first time the focus has been on Pepe in the way they play. And he rose to the occasion. Hmm. That's a very interesting point. Uh, Robert, what are your takeaways on Portugal? Uh, do you actually, actually, do you agree with the focus being on Pepe? Because one of the troubles I'm having is really understanding what it was that Portugal has done consistently, uh, whether it was a tactical thing or whether it was just a few brilliant defensive performances once uh, once Ricardo Carvalho was taken out of the uh, starting lineup after that 3-3 Hungary game. They've barely conceded any chances, let alone goals. So uh, is, is this something special with tactically that has been done with the focus on Pepe? Or are those four back, uh, the four defenders just playing out of their minds right now? You know, it's... Oh, and the goalkeeper. I'm the goalkeeper. Oh, yeah. Let's not forget the goalkeeper. Never forget the goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite sayings, sports sayings that I repeat ad nauseum is luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And if you use that definition of luck, then I think Portugal are a very lucky team because 
I'll agree with with a lot of what Kardec said, but I'll, I'll disagree with slightly on one thing, which is the focus uh, moving from Ronaldo to Pepe. The media focus has always stayed on Ronaldo, and I think that's been an p- important thing for this team. Um, y- you know, the, where was who's the pressure on in this mm. tournament? Ronaldo. Who was the you know who was the one that had to prove themselves? Ronaldo. Did Pepe ever have to prove himself? No. Did Nani have to prove himself? No. Did any of these other players have to prove, prove themselves to an extent? Yes, but not to the extent that um, that a Ronaldo did. So I think while the focus tactically shifted to these other players and the decision was made coming in, you know, let's let's have a strong middle of the pitch, let's have a strong central defense. We'll, you know, we'll concede wing play at times and we'll rely on our, you know, unreal talent up front Ronaldo who is you know we'll play him a little bit out of position but we'll we'll just rely on his talent and him and Nani to to come through and score some goals for us and, and others to score goals for us but let's really slow this game down and, and make it a slog um it, it ain't pretty but um it it won in this tournament and you know if you look back in the recent history of major tournaments um you can look at a team like the Netherlands in the World Cup two World Cups ago and it almost worked for them a similar type of of tactical arrangement so you know in tournaments like this sometimes it's best to just figure out a tactical strategy where it's Mm -hmm. you know survive and advance and survive or survive and advance and um and that might be oversimplifying it but really i think portugal with its tactics got it right obviously they won but you know they made a decision to just kind of be a little bit more boring and be a little bit more um stout and not as have as much flair but you know they still had Ronaldo which means they could get away with it because he would be a focal point for other other teams defense and he could score you know outrageous goals if need be and um he also got lucky with the draw let's not you know we talk about France's draw but Portugal had a little bit of an easier draw even with the Wales team that was missing two of its most crucial players so uh, you know for Portugal it was they were lucky but lucky in the sense where they had the right strategy for the right time in the right tournament, and it paid off for them. Yeah, I actually am inclined to agree with you, Robert. They, I think they were lucky because the more we discuss this, the more I think about this while I'm sitting here, I keep thinking back to those driving runs that Sissoko had. By the way, where did Sissoko come from? Where, who's this player that's that was driving through the Portugal midfield that we haven't seen? This surely isn't the same Newcastle United Sissoko we saw last season uh, because he looked like a different player. But I think of those runs he made, Karthik, from midfield, just running past players. That one shot on goal he had that Rui Patricio just saved brilliantly. Uh, the first 10 minutes, uh, chance after chance for France. We know Gignac, uh, Gignac hit the post. I mean, there were so many chances in this game and... I know we're doing Portugal a little bit of a disservice, but I, I'm even even more strongly disagreeing with you, Kartik, because now I'm even more convinced that France were just unlucky today, and it wasn't Deschamps. Well, I think they they didn't really have the impetus for much of the game. I, Sissoko was very good. I don't know where this... Who is this uh, guy? <laughs> yeah, where this performance came from. Uh, I, I mean, he showed... There, there the last were... couple of games, actually, he's been brilliant. Right, and and I and and there there have been spots in when Alan Pardew managed Newcastle where he would go on these runs of a couple of games, uh, just like any team Pardew manages does, right? And then mm-hmm. just completely fade away. And I, I remember he completely faded away last season, or announced the season before last, the final match of the season they needed to win to avoid relegation, and he had a blinder, and they stayed up. And then of course this season <laughs> that didn't they didn't stay up, but right. he's uh. He's this hit or miss player. He's just this enigma, and there's there's this mystery now. Is is, is it perhaps a a um, a situation where his um, his problems come from playing with the Newcastle team, which is so inconsistent and has so many guys who like him tend to underperform uh, on the big occasions. So that's that's the question. But um, no, I, I, I think if you look at the balance of play, sure, France was unlucky, but they didn't keep the ball as well as they probably should have in this match. There were long stretches of the game after Cristiano got injured where Portugal kept the ball in midfield Carvalho was was very good. Uh, Renato Sanchez, until he gave way, uh, João Matinho, uh, fairly good on the ball, comfortable, not really pressured. And I think that limited the number of opportunities France could have. And uh, as, as you said earlier, 
not not only uh, they they gave up uh, all these chances to Hungary three three they were very fortunate to advance to the knockout stages after that that draw uh, which was all Hungary needed to to win the group they they got the three uh, the the uh, point in that match Portugal has not let has not given up many goals let alone chances. They've given up only a handful of chances, I think, in the uh, knockout stage leading into this match uh, today. And today there were three really good chances for France to score, but that that was it. Uh, one was off a Pepe mistake, which has been rare in this tournament. But I don't know. I just don't think France did enough to win this tournament. I, you, what you expect is teams to get stronger uh, teams like France that were struggling in the group stage have had a lot of selection issues because they are so deep to get stronger as the tournament wears on. They did get stronger against Germany, although I think there were large portions of that game where Germany were the better team. But, but they were also absolutely stunningly brilliant against, against Iceland. The Griezmann goal, the counterattack goal by Griezmann is probably one of the goals of the tournament. Right, but they weren't stunningly brilliant against uh, Republic of Ireland, except for a five-minute period where Ireland also lost her head and and uh, Duffy got sent off. Uh, that was, to me, pretty telling. They weren't stunningly brilliant against Albania. They were very fortunate in that game t- to win. They were fortunate to draw Switzerland. So, in, in my opinion... I aren't you saying that they're supposed to get better as the tournament progresses? In which especially case... at home. Especially yeah. when they're and they they did for one game against Germany, and I guess you you, you make the point about the Iceland match, uh, but they didn't today. There, out the first fifteen minutes or so, they looked they looked apart. Uh, but then after that, I, I thought it was anyone's game. Yes, they created more chances than Portugal. Although it should be noted, after minute ninety, when we went to extra time, Portugal had three very good chances to score. Mm, true. Or yeah. finally, a chance. Uh, and France really didn't have a good chance to score an extra time. I, I don't know uh, uh, what had happened at that point. If they were just resigned and defeated psychologically, if they put so much into the 90 minutes, but they just didn't. They didn't peak when they needed to peak. And uh, look, they're playing at home. There's uh, there's a psychological effect to that. We saw that in the 98 World Cup. We saw that with Germany in 2006 when they they entered the tournament without. A, a, really a strong team. We even saw that with the United States and this Copa America where they got to the semifinals of a Copa that if it had been played anywhere else, they, they, they might have bombed out and lost all three matches. So there is an impact to playing at home in major tournaments and France uh, with, with having beaten Germany, with Italy out of the way, with Spain out of the way, uh, with uh, Belgium out of the way, weren't able to take advantage of it. But the flip side to that, Robert, is that it, the, when you're home, sometimes you do lose in finals, Portugal lost to Greece, right, in in 2004. There's always that pressure of playing in these tournaments. And I think uh, sometimes when you combine the chance factor, the luck factor, uh, coming up against a good team in Portugal, at the same time, some of the pressure from a a France uh, crowd that that is infamous for turning on their own players, is infamous for, for being restless when things aren't going their own way. That sort of thing feeds into a lot of uh, these players. A lot of these players are really, really young. Look at look at Pogba. Look at Martial. Look at Komen. Look at. Uh, I mean, I guess Giroud's not young, but there are a lot of young, inexperienced players in this France team, and I wonder if that contributed to to uh, the loss as well. Well, yes, and I, I maybe I it just I, I don't know if I can buy that narrative. I mean, they they the French crowd has been hard on them the entire tournament. Um, you know, is it something that's been building? Maybe, but, um, it, it, this, this, the crowd was ready to, to boo and hiss and whatever every time France went into halftime without a lead. So, I mean, there was pressure on them throughout, but, you know, th- these are also players who are playing for major clubs. Um, yeah, they're young, but they've also been playing their entire careers for some pretty big name clubs and, and some big, pretty big situations. So, um, it, it just it, it there is a lot of pressure in a championship mm-hmm. game, but I think youth, if and if nothing else, can absolve you in another sense because there's a sense when you're in your early twenties, you're you're a teen or whatever, this is this is your normal. Um, you know, Ronaldo Sanchez will always think that he's going to win <laughs> a, a title every time he plays in the Euros because that's what he's done. Yeah. I mean, that's his experience in the Euros. So for a young player. Um, you don't have that pressure of this is it. This is, this is my chance. This mm-hmm. is, you know, this is, there's uh, four years from now, they'll, they'll hopefully, you know, they're thinking they'll be back. So, um, it, it, the, the pressure could have played into it, but I don't think it's an overwhelming narrative that, um, 
explains a lot of what we saw on the pitch today. Yeah, those are some great points, gentlemen, and great, great conversation. I think that's what uh, people and myself as both host and, and fan of this podcast love about the World Soccer Talk, the Eurocopa podcast, is uh, we get into some serious analysis and, and we have fun doing it. So uh, I want to thank all our listeners who have been on with us for the last month. It's been a lot of fun bringing Eurocopa podcast to you. We're not going away. Uh, the summer soccer is not quite over. Uh, Olympics are coming up. International Champions Cup is coming up. And we're just a month away, Karthik, can you believe, from the Premier League starting up. So uh, there's, we're going to be coming to you every uh, every Sunday per usual with different things to discuss, including transfer window, uh, transfer rumors and uh, sign, small signings like Ibrahimovic, etc., uh, so we'll be talking about that. We'll be back next Sunday. Uh, but until then, on behalf of everyone here at World Soccer Talk and at Eurocopa Podcast, on behalf of myself, Nipun Chopra, and my friend Robert Hay Jr., Karthik, for the last time on the Eurocopa Podcast. Everyone, especially an injured Cristiano Ronaldo, is enjoying <laughs> their football tonight. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.